There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. Well, on this edition of the Joyce Kaufman No Restraint Podcast, we're going to go in a couple of different directions, or at least that's my intention right now at the beginning. But you never know where my mind will take us, and you never know what I'm reading that's affecting me. And this week, I've been reading some articles by Ryan Costello. I've been reading by Jeff Bloodworth. I've been reading a number of articles on Substack. I think that's my number one source of information these days. A little bit disappointed in Elon Musk, uh, really just messing with the Substack writers and not wanting their post to be on Twitter. And I don't understand it. And maybe one day I'll have an interview with Elon Musk. Maybe not. But I will ask him why, why he's picking these fights that I don't believe need to be picked. But there was a really interesting article by this uh, Jeff Bloodworth on the Free Press. That's Barry Weiss's Substack. And he said, my best friend died from loneliness. And then he talked about this one demographic in America today that we're not even allowed to think about, never mind talk about, and that would be white, working-class, middle-aged Americans. And they are the only group right now in America where we see their life expectancy diminishing. And for this particular author, talking about his friend's death really moved me and made me think about certain people in my life He talked about how his friend Mike had died alone, and he said he had lived alone as well. He ate alone. He slept alone. Aloneness was his natural state. And at age 50, it was finally a bout of sepsis that officially did him in. That's what it says on his death certificate anyway. But Jeff Bloodworth said, I don't believe that. I think he died of solitude. Like Mike, America's white working class is alone. It's being crushed by its isolation. Since 2000, white working class Americans between the ages of 45 and 54 have been one of the only demographics in the whole world that has seen its life expectancy fall. And these deaths are mostly suicides. Some are officially blamed on things like alcoholism and addiction, but that's basically suicide in slow motion. Whatever we call them, they're a lagging indicator of an economy in transition. Just as the working class is succumbing to increasingly digitized, globalized, automated, post-industrial era, you know, the working stiffs, the assembly line workers and the welders and the mechanics and the miners and their kin, the people who once made up the working class are tacitly acknowledging they have no role in this anymore. 
And, you know, I'm sure many of us can relate to that, even if we're big city kids like me, because we've known the working class and it may take a different uh, road in a city, but it's still the working class. For the author of this uh, article on Substack, he said he grew up in Memphis and in Springfield, Missouri, surrounded by people who gave up, people who died long before it was their time. And he includes his dad, his aunt, his uncle, two of his first cousins. And soon, he said, I fear my sister, who thought she could marry up to escape her childhood. Turns out that the junior league and fancy cars can't undo the past. And last month, he said, my best friend, Mike, we met in 1987 when we were both 16. We went to different nearby high schools. We were part of the same angry, alienated, tuned out, disaffected scene. The kids who weren't rich or attractive or jocks, the kids who liked black t-shirts and funky hairstyles, who were like a collective F.U. to Ronald Reagan's America. And by now, this is an old story. We've been hearing about the deaths of despair since 2020, and really since Donald Trump was elected president in 2016, which zapped our nation's somnolent elites into taking notice of working-class America's crisis. And seven years later, on the cusp of another presidential campaign, those elites have learned approximately nothing. Republicans have tried to capitalize on anger and bitterness, and they've made great headway, but they offer little in the way of a serious agenda to rectify the cascading crises that have beset the American hinterland, shuttered main streets and shuttered factories, the opiate crisis, obesity, the decline of the Protestant work ethic, the giving up. This should surprise no one. How can the party of free markets be expected to fix problems that were mostly created by free markets? Democrats who used to be the party of the working class are the last best hope if they can only find their way back to the class-based political space they once inhabited. And that is a very big if. Countless mics, working middle-class white guys, are depending on them, and I've got bad news for them. They will not and cannot deliver. Mike, his full name was Michael Moore, like the filmmaker, uh, came of age at the intersection of working-class decay and a rapidly liberalizing bourgeois culture. In the early 1980s, his dad, who was unhappy with his marriage and five kids, pulled the escape lever of no-fault divorce and bolted Springfield in the Ozarks for Houston. There he found better-paying jobs and a new family, 650 miles away from his youngest son. Mike's mom, Sandra, moved the family to a cheaper, poorer neighborhood in Springfield, Mike was eight years old. Sandra did her best, but the government-subsidized house that the family lived in was cramped and unhappy. And by the time Mike entered high school, his four older siblings had fled. Like his dad, they were so busy saving themselves, they forgot Mike was left behind. On top of that, the house was on uneven land, and there was standing water at the foundation that led to an ever-present mold. For Mike, that meant allergies. He was an easy target for bullies. Then there were his mom's personal woes. She solved her depression with Milwaukee's best and an abusive boyfriend. 
a sullen, drunk, and Vietnam vet who literally moved into their home uninvited. There, he abused Mike and Mike's mom before a friend intervened. Whether it was physical, emotional, or sexual, Mike never said. Back then in the late 80s, it was Mike and our friend Carl and me. Carl's mom was never home, so we'd hang out at his place. Lots of drinking and smoking weed and listening to Black Flag, The Smiths, and Crass. Mike loved the Crass song, Asylum, which ends with the lyrics, Jesus died for his own sins, not mine. A low-rent breakfast club, minus Molly Ringwald. In the summers, Mike visited his dad and saw the life that had been denied him but given to his stepbrother. Kent was cocky and handsome and drove a convertible Jeep and went on to play Division I tennis at the University of Missouri. Back home, Mike drove a junk bucket Volkswagen Beetle to a sub-minimum wage job at a movie theater in a beat-up mall. Rides came with obligatory sing-alongs. His sardonic warbling of the joy of driving was always tinged with a touch of bitterness. By now, it's become orthodoxy among Democrats that the ticket out of despair is higher education. And there's a lot of truth to that. Since 1979, wages for those with a bachelor's or a postgraduate degree have risen by 22% and 28% respectively. Those with only a high school diploma have seen their wages dip by 2%. Those who dropped out, 18%. But what those college-educated Democrats often can't see is that a degree isn't enough that so many of us who made it to the campus never learned the cues, the lingos, the tastes, or the mannerisms of the upper class, which are, in a way, more important than the degree, which, of course, is the subtext of J.D. Vance's hillbilly elegy. That was, of course, Mike's experience. Mike was industrious. He managed to get himself into the University of Missouri. He was into punk, although he never dressed the part. He loved reading Hermann Hesse. He was fascinated by Germany and the Holocaust, not in a morbid way, but because he wanted to know what made human beings so indifferent to others' suffering. And after college, he moved to Dallas to be closer to his dad. He tried to land a job with the Texas Democratic Party, but that never materialized, and he didn't have the wherewithal to stick it out. He didn't have anyone telling him that it was going to be all right, that eventually something good would happen. Instead, he got a job at a car rental company. He hated it. Panicked, Mike pivoted to computers, where he found steady work building online training classes. He was terrified of poverty and labored tirelessly to pay off student loans and credit card debt. In our 20s, our roads diverged. I was in grad school by then and starting to build something called a career, a group of friends with like-minded interests, Mike seemed incapable of finding his way, of forging friendships, or even dating. After two decades of toiling away in a corporate world he had no taste for and no idea how to succeed in, he settled his debts and saved enough for a modest condominium in a faceless St. Louis suburb. But he had no one to share that with. He had stopped trying to meet a woman by his late 30s. There had been the occasional hookup, but that was it. He chain-smoked his way into middle-aged. He seemed resigned to things. He had worked so hard to escape the gravitational pull of his family's self-immolation, but he didn't know how to make it happen, and he lacked the confidence 
or grit, as TED Talk enthusiasts say, to keep going. The American left isn't sure what to make of people like Mike or his family or the authors for that matter. The white working class used to be the focus of the American left, but the left abandoned them amid the tumult of the late 1960s. Vietnam, the civil rights movement, women's rights, the radicalization of the campus, the upending of traditional mores and family structures, that was when the paradigm started to shift from a class-based politics to a politics of race and sex. Now, we're a cudgel used by progressives to bash late-stage capitalism, whatever they mean by that. Over the course of the 1970s and 1980s, as the working class gave way to the titanic economic forces that were reshaping the United States, we found ourselves, or at least white working middle class people, found themselves increasingly on the margins of the Democratic Party. Bill Clinton briefly cobbled the old coalition back together. It did more good for him, though, than for them. By the early 2000s, the working class was adrift. Thomas Frank's 2004 book, What's the Matter with Kansas, made coastal progressives feel better about themselves by blaming their political shortcomings on us, by insisting the white middle class had been duped by GOP culture warriors. If only those dumb working stiffs hadn't been taken in by the pro-lifers, we could win back the White House. When in 2008, Barack Obama did just that, progressives took it as evidence that, hey, guess what? Democrats didn't need the white working class. Then in 2016, along came Donald Trump. Did he appeal to some people's darker tendencies? Absolutely. But mostly, they were looking for someone who would pay attention. Progressives responded to the election by talking about escaping their bubbles in New York and Los Angeles and studying the weird ways of these awful people who had voted for the wrong candidate. It was laughable. They didn't need to be studied. They needed to be represented. They needed schools and roads and bridges. And you know what? God and family wouldn't have hurt either. That didn't make them fire-breathing conservatives. It made them human. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Mike was not lucky. He didn't have wonderful grandparents like Jeff. They had come from Missouri, and his grandparents migrated from the farm to small-town life, and his grandfather had been an assistant manager at a wholesale goods store in Memphis. And when he was 11, his mother and sister had to flee Memphis because his father was a violent guy, and there's no other way to put it. His grandparents sold everything and came to Springfield. While his mother worked two minimum wage jobs as a janitor and a clerk at a clothing store, his grandparents gave him structure and a sense of purpose. There was no drinking and no swearing, and we always read the Bible before bed. I'm not a devout Southern Baptist like they were, but that faith still gives me hope. Point is, that's all it is. The luck of having the right grandparents, in my case. 
When Democrats ask what white middle-class guys want, I always think about the same thing. They want to live in America, where luck isn't that important. Sure, sometimes you get a lucky break. Sometimes it's the opposite. But the bottom doesn't fall out from under you when someone loses a job or gets sick. In this America, the one of their dreams, there's always a safety net and a way forward. There's a government that says, here, here's some help. Now get back to work. Jeff spoke to Mike for two or three times a week for many, many years, badgered him into counseling to deal with his childhood, begged him to move closer to him. Then in 2017, something inside Mike finally shattered. For years, he'd say, I'm in this all alone. And then he really was. He slowly broke contact with Carl and me. Calls and texts and letters went unanswered. And last October, his mother died. Mike didn't want to talk, so I texted him my condolences. He texted back, all things will pass. Tonight it hit me, though. There's no point in talking. People talk too much, usually to their own detriment. A few weeks ago, Carl called. I knew the news before answering. The sepsis had come from acute myeloid leukemia, which doctors blamed on the smoking. Mike ignored his symptoms. His boss drove him to the hospital for testing. That night, after they'd processed the test, the doctors called him. They wanted to hospitalize him immediately. It was too late. Mike had already died at home. The next day, co-workers noticed he wasn't there and called the police. It was a small funeral, a few people from work, a few family members, Carl, who's now married to a woman who I'm told comes from a wealthy family with ties to the Texas Democratic Party, couldn't make it. I tried my best to be polite to Mike's father. After the funeral, I kept thinking I was living the life Mike should have lived. He should have gone to grad school. He shouldn't have listened to his professors who told him getting an academic post would be impossible. He should have found someone who would have appreciated his sense of humor, his musings on literature and popular culture. Instead, that person is Jeff, even as he's surrounded by more deaths of despair. His uncle Mike, who drank himself to death in 1982, he hadn't yet hit 40. His father, who was a drunk and turned up dead in a motel in Kentucky in 2005, he made it to the ripe old age of 61. My cousin Todd, age 43, who died a few years later of a heart attack, and the list goes on and on. It's strange to live in the echo of loss. It's strange to be in academia. Uh, this is a man who teaches history at a small Catholic school in Erie, Pennsylvania, Gannon University. His focus is American liberalism and genocide studies. And the truth is, he doesn't feel like he belongs there. I applied to 200 schools before landing an academic job. My wife, Sam, and I have a daughter and a tenure and a dog and a mortgage and each other. And during the pandemic, we moved my mom to be near us. She lives a mile and a half away and eats dinner with us four nights a week. I worry, like everyone from a broken place, about losing everything. And that is the story of the white working middle class as explained on Substack. And I must tell you, it really resonated with me. And I may be a big city girl, but we were working class, middle class people. And I understand the despair. And it's really crazy because when you think about how the elites have uh, attached themselves to like communism, it's crazy. It's one of the most vexing questions and actually one of the most consequential questions that face us. 
right now in America. Why, why does this nation's ruling elites seem to be madly in love with China? Or to put a finer point on it, why are the political and corporate leaders of America, which is long the freest, most successful, most prosperous, and most Christian nation in history, now in craven submission to a ruthless, communist, totalitarian, and explicitly atheistic dictatorship openly committed to ruling the world, including America. The astonishing answers come into view only when one contemplates both the unprecedented level of political and financial corruption in America's ruling class and simultaneously the communist Chinese government's brilliantly devious methods of unconventional total warfare. Consider the most recent revelations about China. It intentionally created the COVID-19 virus that has killed almost 7 million people worldwide, including over a million Americans, in a Wuhan biolab, the result of wildly dangerous gain-of-function research on bat coronaviruses, literally intended to make the pathogen more lethal to human beings. America's leadership class perversely spent years covering up China's complicity in all of this. And in response to the few U.S. voices that were demanding transparency from China, the communist government there continuously lied, denied, threatened, and even launched a propaganda campaign claiming America had created and leaked the deadly virus from a Maryland military base. And of course, through its controlling influence on the World Health Organization, China largely dictated the disastrous total lockdown pandemic response that was adopted by America at the direction of one Dr. Anthony Fauci, who wreaked total havoc on the nation's society, business, education, mental health, the economy, and the free exercise of religion, all part of China's unconventional tactical warfare. China's ruling authority, the Atheist Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, is the nation's de facto god, controlling virtually every major aspect of their lives, the lives of almost one and a half billion people living there. For example, the CCP has long dictated the exact number of children that couples are permitted to have, imposing its infamous one-child policy in 1980, replaced by a two-child policy in 2016 and a three-child policy in 2021. Enforcement has been brutal, including forced abortions, sterilization, and fines, and the policies have resulted in a horrendous epidemic of female infanticide, especially in rural areas. But that's just the beginning. China forces entire minority populations, like the Uyghur Muslims, into slave labor concentration camps. Even worse, it routinely harvests organs from them and other innocent people it regards as expendable commodities. In 2019, the China Tribunal, an independent London-based panel of international legal and medical experts, determined conclusively that China's communist government for decades had been systematically killing prisoners of conscience, especially Falun Gong practitioners and Muslims, in order to harvest their organs and sell them. That's capitalism, China-style. Multiple credible eyewitness reports 
confirm that women in these large slave labor camps, which communist Chinese authorities call re-education camps, are routinely raped, tortured, forcibly sterilized, and forced to sing patriotic communist songs. As Amelia Pang, author of Made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods, told the New York Post, rape is pretty standard in forced labor camps. The goal is to brainwash prisoners into being patriotic and extremely aligned with the Chinese state. And Kuzat Alte, CEO of an international software coding outfit, Saideo, and an activist dedicated to exposing China's human rights abuses, saw his own father imprisoned in one of China's camps for two years. He confirms that organ harvesting is normal in the Chinese Communist Party. They're known for this. As an example, he explained to the Post, there are some rich Middle Eastern clients who want Muslim kidneys since they are free of alcohol and pork. So Uyghur people are having their kidneys taken. This is clearly nothing short of Hitlerian for the people of China. But beyond providing really cheap goods for Americans, plus cheap outsourced labor and more than a billion potential Chinese customers and consumers for American companies like Disney, how does all of this impact the United States in every way imaginable? Almost all very bad. For decades, China has been plundering America, massively stealing her intellectual property and technology at every opportunity, embedding spies in the U.S. government, including in the halls of Congress, including in the White House, embedding spies, farmland, acreage near sensitive military installations, infiltrating the nation's universities in multiple ways, from planting communist professors to making generous endowments and, in general, buying influence in every way possible. Truly, China's infiltration and ongoing de facto colonization of America has a thousand faces. And one of those many faces is China's wildly popular social media app, TikTok, with over 70 million monthly active users within the United States, most of them young. Not only has TikTok been exposed as a secret surveillance tool for the CCP, enabling it to gather personal data on tens of millions of American young people, but it is also as the popular Twitter account Libs of TikTok has documented, heavily populated with LGBT recruiters and groomers, seducing America's teens into changing their gender and encouraging them to undergo horrifying surgical mutilations. Interestingly, none of these sorts of videos are allowed on the Chinese version of TikTok viewed by young people in that country. The CCP wants its nation's next generation, to be good, patriotic communists, and has no interest in seducing China's future leaders into identifying as another gender or fretting over which pronoun they should force everyone else to use for them. Another face of the CCP's stealth war on America's youth is its partnership with the Mexican criminal drug cartels in flooding America with fentanyl, the number one killer of younger Americans aged 18 to 45. 
As Representative Dan Newhouse, the Republican from Washington, recently wrote, it's estimated China is responsible for over 90% of illicit fentanyl found in the United States. We simply cannot allow the lethal fentanyl engine in China to run while communities across America's heartland are being torn apart. With China engaged in this long-term, multifaceted, unconventional war on America, why does the U.S. government, under Joe Biden's leadership, along with much of corporate America, bow and scrape before China? Well, I can tell you this. China is conquering America, and we seem to be incapable of doing anything about it. Thanks for listening to today's No Restraint podcast. I try to get these No Restraint podcasts out every single week, but bear with me because sometimes technology gets in the way, sometimes sheer laziness gets in the way, but most often I'm so overwhelmed with what's going on around me is that it's really tough to put together any more commentary than what I do each weekday on the radio. But I appreciate my audience and I know that I'm able to call some of the most interesting subjects from some of the greatest writers between Substack and other publications that I frequently read myself. And I just want to share them with you because you're my best friends. And that's why, unlike the initial story in today's No Restraint podcast, I never feel alone and I'm never worried that I will be forgotten. Stay tuned. You know another No Restraint podcast will be coming your way soon. Stay well. May God bless you, and may God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.